that threat group never stabilized after that. So that was a very active threat group in our province. After we took the head of the snake off, the leader, that threat group never stabilized to the point of getting good leadership again. So it wilted away and died on the vine. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody left. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Were very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Glenn Kolomets is a veteran of the Royal Australian Air Force and the Australian Army. He went from aircraft technician to military policeman to legal officer. He's also a lawyer and a former New South Wales police officer. He's still doing important work in the veteran space. This is his conversation with Angus Horden. I'm Angus Horden, and I'm speaking today with Glenn Kolomets. Glenn. Welcome to Life on the Line. Uh, good morning, Angus. Thanks for having me. Glenn, let's start at the beginning. Tell us about your childhood. Um, I was born in Brisbane in 1967, uh, the son of a, a veteran, a veteran of uh, confrontation, Indonesian confrontation. So dad was in Malaysia from 63 to 65, had me in 67. Uh, married mum in Malaysia, so she lived in Tarenda Barracks. Well, dad was out, um, quite interestingly, dad was out, uh, out fighting the war and he'd come home of an evening to the, to the barracks. Um, grew up in uh, in Scarborough, just north of Brisbane. Left school pretty early. Left school after grade ten uh, because I, we were pretty broke, I have to say. And uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to work. I wanted to start making some money. So did some deckhand time on a, a mate's trawler and on a, a mate's dad's crabbing boat before uh, essentially getting into the into the military to get a trade um, in 1986. Went from there. Had a very diverse military and other career since then. So growing up, did you have any cadet exposure or any prior military exposure other than your dad's service in Malaya? I was a naval reserve cadet for a little while, a very short time on the Redcliffe Peninsula in uh, in Queensland. That was fun, I guess, but uh, I was a bit, you know, I, did, I didn't stay in that in the reserve space. So not, not really other than that and dad. Let's talk about your dad, Glenn, about his period in Malaya. Dad was in Malaysia from, or uh, well, Malaya became Malaysia, of course, from 63 to 65. Um, he took mum over there and married mum uh, while they were they were there, living in Tarenda Barracks. Uh, he was a section commander, so a corporal with uh, three RAR, old old faithful as it's uh, as it's known. Dad didn't speak much about uh, his operational service for many, many years. In fact, he was very quiet. He and I were watching a, a documentary one night on Operation Claret after they declassified Operation Claret many, many years afterwards. Um, and I said to Dad, were you involved in, in the Claret Op? And he said, uh, yeah, of course. Um, this is you know, operating into Borneo and other parts of, of Malaysia and, uh, and actually engaging Indonesian forces, uh, which was quite, there was really an unknown conflict for many Australians. So uh, then Dad started opening up and telling me a lot about, um, about his experience. Uh, it, it sort of came to a bit of a head too. Uh, he and I and my kids and my wife were at the War Memorial in Canberra, standing in front of, in the this very small confrontasi section close to the Vietnam, between the Korea and Vietnam section, quite 
historically appropriate, I, I guess, temporarily. And he was standing in front of a uh, beaten up uh, SLR a rifle uh, from that, that period with a photo of a, of a uh, soldier who was killed. And Dad was staring at this. And I said, Dad, what are you doing? He said to me, quite poignantly, my fingerprints are on that rifle. I said, what are you talking about? He said that uh, he was a section commander when that soldier was killed by an Indonesian landmine in a contact. And um, they extracted this particular soldier and dad grabbed the the left the rifle on the, on as they were being extracted so uh, he then told me for many years every year on the anniversary of this soldier's death he would put something in the paper a bit of a, a, a memorial piece um, and I walked away thinking that's uh, that's quite amazing that was that was the, the the most intimate account of dad's combat experience I'd had whilst walking through the war memorial Yes, I mean, that's incredible because so many, I mean, I've gone to the War Memorial and met with veterans and they would share something at the mm. memorial that mm. affected them. Yeah. And uh, I can imagine that would be a very hallowed space for you at the War Memorial, yeah. that any time you would go there, that's where you would first go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is your dad still around? Yes, he is. He's in Brisbane, yeah. Yeah, great. So what ultimately inspired you to join the Defence Forces? Very much um, Dad and the fact that, uh, that way back then he was involved in the early 80s, he was involved in the RSL in Queensland and uh, I'd go along to the RSL and I really liked the Anzac Day services and the, uh, I guess, the pomp and ceremony associated with um, the RSL, which was clearly associated with the military, you know, peripherally. Certainly I liked the Anzac, the marches and the, and the ceremony. So, um, so I joined as uh, an aircraft tradesman originally. I wanted to trade too. I wanted to, I wanted to get some sort of skills that I could use uh, that I could use later on, and um, a trade was the, the most appropriate way. So, um, 1986, I went off and, and joined the ADF as an aircraft tradesman. That opportunity that it afforded you, and obviously then shaped your life tremendously. I mean, yeah. what would you say to young people today that? you can still do exactly what you've done and many others have done, that you join the military and you learn a skill and you serve for a while. How did that really help you later in life? Look, I've been absolutely blessed with um, not just trade skills and other skills, but a, a very good education, having left school after grade 10 with, with not much. Compliments of either defence or the New South Wales police. I, I joined the police later. and um, So I was given not just um, the trade, but I was put through the Army Year 12 course. So I was given my, my Year 12 in the Army. I was commissioned as an officer in defence as a result of doing that Year 12. And um, I had a couple of um, postgraduate degrees paid for by defence. So, um, so look, the opportunities are enormous. Uh, mind you, it's not given to you on a platter. You you work very, very hard in defence. And if you're given these opportunities, I, I say to young people, take them, you know, jump on them, take the opportunities, but be prepared to work firstly to earn them and then to, uh, to really justify them, I think. So let's talk about your work for the pay. Um, yeah. You were servicing aircraft. That's right. And where did that take you? Where were you based and, and were there any postings abroad that came from that? Yeah, I was um, based in Amberley initially and then when the Army took over the Black Hawk helicopter or the rotary wing role, I moved to Townsville with 5th Aviation Regiment. I went from there to New Guinea on a couple of occasions doing uh, various, various bits and pieces with certain Army units in New Guinea. Then from Townsville to Oki, which is the, the home of Army aviation in this country, of course. Everyone everyone that wears the powder blue beret ends up at Oki at some stage. So I went down there with the Blackhawks and, and the Hueys, uh, you know, the Kiowa, the, sorry, the Iroquois. Did a little bit of work on Kiowa, the little Kiowa recce helicopter as well while I was in Oki. From there, I um, did the Army Year 12 course. I went to Inogra to do, I decided I wanted 
to get the year 12. I wanted the education. I wanted to the I wanted to be an officer. I had you know, reasonable leadership skills as a as a junior NCO as a, as a corporal. Um, so I wanted to um, to get uh, get commissioned. And the Army Year 12 course in Nogra in Brisbane was the opportunity to do to do that. So Glenn, what's next for you? I was uh, I was commissioned. Now I originally did the Year 12 course with a view to uh, to being commissioned into either the SSO Special Service Officer Pilot Scheme or through Duntroon, but I. I wanted to try air traffic control. I was interested in that area. So um, I ended up uh, moving into air traffic. Now, around this time, the uh, Army lost its air traffic control role. Then the Air Force took it over. So I, I had really had to go to the Air Force as an officer if I wanted to do air traffic, which I did. You know, I did, uh, did, did Point Cook, East Sale, Richmond. I did that for a few years. I tend to get itchy feet, I think. It, uh, probably become quite apparent when we speak about, about my diverse career, but I um, left air traffic and I wanted to study law. I really wanted to study law around this time. I had my year 12, did pretty well, um, had a bit of a social justice bent, so I wanted to study law. I couldn't do it in the Air Force then. I was pretty much tunneled into air traffic, so I left air traffic. And I wasn't really enjoying that job, to be honest, anyway. It was a bit of a bit of an office job in a, in a tower, I suppose, But and joined New South Wales Police but at the same time, I went across to I went back to the army as a, a reservist military police platoon commander, and then military police operations officer and and training development officer. We've been between the reserves and the regular army, the New South Wales Police. So, what made you swap a life in the green for a life in the blue? Yeah, the um, I, I knew that I could uh, the opportunity would be there if I worked hard to do law in New South Wales Police. And I also knew that uh, police prosecutors, uh, that was a very good training ground for practical advocacy, to be an advocate, a lawyer advocate. And I also was interested in, in the policing role, I, not, not so much general duties. I wanted to specialise, which I did very quickly. But I liked uh, the thought of investigating and prosecuting. And so the police um, became, was a very good opportunity for me. And the, the police, in fact, paid for my law degree. So um, mind you, again, I, I was working full time whilst studying and I gave them a few years afterwards in return. So um, in pretty demanding jobs. But um, nonetheless, um, the police put me through my law degree, uh, which was a fantastic opportunity. I understand they, they still do for certain certain police. But um, so I was trained as a prosecutor put through my law degree, had some time in the coronial jurisdiction, so working for the coroner um, and attached to the coronial investigations team, uh, as well as being a coronial advocate, so counsel assisting, essentially. And finally, I uh, the counter-terrorism around this time became quite a big a big issue. It was, it was that, that sort of era when, uh, when things were happening close to our own shores. Whilst working for the coroner, I was doing some part-time legal advising on Involving counterterrorism laws, uh, and I'd studied a, a bit of uh, counterterrorism in in some of my postgraduate degrees by that stage. So I won a sergeant's job at uh, New South Wales Police Counterterrorist Coordination Command, which was renamed from Special Branch. It was the old Special Branch. Went there uh, in the intelligence unit, the counter as a sergeant in the counterterrorism intelligence unit. So working, advising analysts and and, and uh, investigators, and of course the chain of command. So the assistant commissioner and the commander in um, the application of all of this this law and uh, and policy and also in uh, looking at briefs and looking at intelligence briefs and looking for a, essentially evidentiary value in uh, in any of these this intelligence product. And then you have a stint as the defence policy advisor for the um, Shadow Defence Ministry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to, um, I was given an opportunity, I was approached by... Um, by Robert McClellan, the Shadow Defence Minister at the time under Kim Beasley. And I told Robert I'd give him uh, up until the 2007 election to help rewrite Labor's defence 
platform leading up to the 07 election, which I did. So I gave Robert uh, a solid year of um, actually giving the Labor Party some real-time defence and national security policy advice uh, you know, from from a, a known platform, so from somebody who had studied and applied this stuff. And whilst there, I, I completed a, a Master of Defence Studies through ADFA. So again, another opportunity came up, which allowed me to have a deeper dive into that strategy and policy space whilst in Canberra working for Clallan. So that was, a, that was a good opportunity, a very hard job working as a staffer, particularly leading up to an election and a change of government. But um, I think uh, re- knowing helping to rewrite Labor's defence platform then was very good. It was a very good step for me. And I think also putting party politics aside, mm. Beasley's known as one of the best, uh, certainly one of the better defence guys we've had. To serve under a capable minister and then his department thereof would be quite productive and worthwhile. Absolutely. And in fact, um, what impressed me about Kim Beasley, I, I went to brief Kim on two occasions in a pretty dynamic environment. One was surrounding East Timor. We, we had some, some intelligence come in that a, a group of ships were gearing up to deploy one of which was a, a frigate. Frigates, the rest were transport vessels, but frigates provide area air defence. I went to brief my boss, McClelland, and said, look, they're clearly going to Timor. Transport vessels plus a, a vessel providing area air defence, clearly it's for Timor. Kevin Rudd, he thought it was for Fiji, but um, there was not any prospect of an air threat around Fiji, so you wouldn't take a frigate for that sort of a task. So uh, I went and briefed Beasley about Timor. Beasley accepted that, and that afternoon, John Howard, the Prime Minister at the time, announced we were going back into Timor, and Kim Beasley was ready with a response. Uh, the second occasion was uh, Afghanistan, getting ready to go back to Afghanistan. Uh, I took a map of um, of a Ruzgan province to Beasley's office, sat down and briefed him on Australia's force um, structure uh, or disposition in Afghanistan at the time, and it's likely force structure disposition. And uh, what I liked about Kim was he listened intently, asked very sensible, well, well-informed questions, which you could just tell his see his mind ticking over. He knew what I was saying. He knew what he needed, needed to know. So he could go into that chamber, into that parliament and speak with an informed voice about our deployment. So um, look, very impressive man. I was very proud to, to brief Kim Beasley. I can always remember Kim Beasley when he was running in the election. Um, he was flying over from Perth to Sydney. And what I liked about the man was in his hand was Les Carline's book on the Anzacs. Yeah, and, yeah. and that said a lot about him, that he took in particular the nation and, and our defence. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think you were fortunate to serve under a good minister. Absolutely. So leaving politics, you dust off your military uniform and you return as a regular army as a legal officer. Well, I came back in, um, I was still a military police officer at that time in 07. My wife and I moved to Wagga because Emma was a, uh, she's a GP now, but she was, I think, an intern then or a registrar intern then. Um, and she was a rural, you know, intended to be a rural GP. So she moved to Wagga. I went, obviously went with her. Um, and the opportunity came up to do full-time reserve work. So whilst there, I transferred from military police to legal corps as a reservist. And then very, very shortly thereafter, back in the regular army. So your duties there then lead you later on to East Timor again. Timor in uh, 08, 09. I had a couple of Christmases in a row away from home, which is pretty standard. But um, so I was in Timor 08, 09 as the as the legal officer, which was a very interesting time, I have to say. It was it was uh, obviously a few years after the um, what I would call the the combat phase, so the interfet phase, and it was after the initial UN Antayet, you know, the transitional phase. But it was still a fairly when I got there, it was a fairly dynamic environment. We um, Not long before I got there, some grenades were thrown over the fence into Camp Phoenix, the Australian base in Dili, and there was still evidence of the, the fragmentation on the, on the wall there. So um, they were still on quite a high security stance when I, when I, got, when I came into country. 
um, I was still in, I was in body armor, helmet, rifle, pistol. By the time I left six months later, I was getting around town in the baseball cap and, the, and my nine mil pistol. So in six months, we, that is Australia and New Zealand, had helped stabilize that country incredibly. Very busy job, very, very busy job um, as, as the, the, one, the sole legal officer. A lot of my role was key leadership engagement. So engaging with government in Timor, plus the Portuguese, plus the, um, the UN and, and many others. I think people also need to realise that in modern warfare today, the legal officer has quite a different role to how we could perceive a legal person here at home, in that you've got guys that are engaged on the front line quite literally set with their rules of engagement. And things always change, especially mm. after the first shot's fired. Consequently, you are then involved mm. as to how they can react, what they can do. Yeah. Can you elaborate a bit on, on any circumstances around that? We're actually in, engaged a lot earlier than that. We're, um, we, we sh- if we're doing our job properly, we should be enabling these troops to do their job. And not, not saying what they can and can't do, but enabling them to do their job within the, bound, the left and right of arc of the law, so within the bounds of the law, the rules of engagement. So we should be in there training them during their force preparation and giving them in-theatre training, practical scenario-based training, getting out there with them you know, as often as we can just to sort of help steer them through certain issues, but also then addressing their concerns. Uh, and I'll speak about Afghanistan shortly because there were some very significant issues I had to address there during my tour, during my two rotations there, my summer one, two or two rotations. But you're actively engaged from day one in that rule of engagement, law of armed conflict space. So um, very dynamic role to the point that I've, I've heard um, as, as a criticism, incidentally, referred to as the lawyer with their finger on the trigger. That, that's how intimate it is. That's how close you are to, to the actual engagements. And that, that comes in very, very significantly in Afghanistan in, in, in the dynamic targeting, the drone uh, prosecutions, so the drone strikes, which I was involved in. So, Glenn, let's go to Afghanistan then. Sure, yeah. I went into Afghanistan with the first rotation with a reserve commando company out of Melbourne. This was during what they call the non the non fighting season, so the um, the winter um, rotation, which was was interesting. It was uh, most of my role there again was ensuring that the rules of engagement were understood and applied appropriately, and advising on on them. And this particular company I went in with, uh, they were a bit lawyer shy. Sadly, they were involved in an incident on their earlier rotation involving um, some grenades and the deaths of some children and some subsequent prosecutions, uh, disappointingly. So these, this particular company weren't particularly open initially to engaging with the lawyer, um, which I could accept. I, uh, I was there as an enabler, so I helped them as best I could. It was my next rotation, which was um, with uh, what, they, what they call Alpha and Bravo, so an SAS squadron and a company of regular commandos during the fighting season where it became very, very dynamic and very engaged. Both the squadron and company commanders would actively seek out my advice during their operational planning. And even if they didn't, I would be there anyway. <laughs> that's, that's the nature of the beast. You've got to make yourself involved. But And their, their subordinate commanders, their, their platoon commanders or their, their um, patrol commanders would come to me for advice. Um, I'd get contacted from the field uh, for advice um, and I'd be out in the field doing certain tasks. So I spent an enormous amount of time on that second, on both rotations really, outside the wire, probably more than any one individual soldier, to be honest, because I was one lawyer acting by myself. But engaged in the detainee, extracting detainees from the field, extracting evidentiary material from the field, escorting detainees to Kabul for prosecution to hand over to the Afghan government, watching live feeds in the operations room of our troops in the field, going to, to meetings in Kandahar to argue the point with the ISAF, some of the ISAF chain of command about how our troops um, wanted to apply the rules of engagement, that we were operating under two lots of rules of engagement, NATO and Australian. So obviously some, some discrepancies came up 
and I'd have to go and fight the case, prosecute the case for the, the way we wanted to apply certain ROE. So very active in that area. But I think um, very critically, this, this is a big point. This goes back to that finger on the trigger piece. Australia has prosecuted, as, as we know, it's public knowledge, some Predator Reaper drone strikes on some key top tier insurgents, some insurgent leaders, one of which was on my on my watch, so during my first rotation. So how, how it works is that I, my job as the lawyer is to essentially look at all of the intelligence product and look at all the information and make sure one, we can we can lawfully target this person. There's gonna be zero risk of civilian casualties, so that collateral damage piece, and make sure we can actually do this, prosecute this serial. So uh, in this particular case, uh, I won't name the objective, the, the, the insurgent, but it came down to the commanding officer, the intelligence officer and myself, Looking at the product, the drones on on frequency, so the, the drones up there ready to go, live feed to the location where this insurgent was, and the CO turned to me and said, Glenn, can we do this? And my response was I ticked off all the boxes legally and, and temporally and geographically to ensure that the risk was minimised, of the risk of collateral damage. And I said, boss, we're good to go. Next thing, with, within a very short time, within seconds, it's happened and there's a puff of smoke and um, the job's done. The target was prosecuted and that instantly that, that um, particular prosecution, that threat group never stabilised after that. So that was a very active threat group in our province. After we took the head of the snake off, the leader, that threat group never, never uh, stabilised to the point of getting good leadership again. So it, it, it wilted away and died on the vine. I can imagine that it would be incredibly frustrating for the guys in the field having to prosecute the law and just care for the people and, and do do their work and then be in a position where they can uh, remove one of these hostile elements and then to be able to do it to the extent that we don't accidentally have some collateral damage that mm. someone else is in the way or, 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 right. or something. You must have experienced great frustration with people in that process who would be saying, let's do it, let's do it, and you've got to say, the law says we can do this. Yeah. I never actually said, um, and I made a point of this throughout my military lawyer career, and indeed as a military police officer, but more so as a lawyer, I never actually said no to a commander, no, you can't do this, boss. I always said, these are the risks with doing that, and these are the options to do it within the the bounds of the law, so within a, in a lawfully defensible Manner and I think commanders, these particularly special operations you know, bosses, they they appreciate that. They the lawyer is an enabler, and even though we do have the red card essentially to say no go, I found that my commanders, my special operations bosses in Afghanistan, respected the fact that I was there to enable him to do his job, and therefore, if I had said, and we'll use that drone strike as an example, if I had said no, boss, we can't do this, he wouldn't have gone here with the prosecution. I'm with the, prosecuting the target, I'm sure, because. He wouldn't have had it legally ticked off. So they like the fact that I'm there to protect them, um, as well as myself, of course, and the troops and the civilians and Australia's reputation by keeping that close eye on what's on what's happening. And I can imagine in any service period, there are always those lighter and funny moments. Can you share any of those? Yeah, the, this is interesting. I um, During the winter rotation, one of these uh, particular special operations um, soldiers from Melbourne had a big... These guys grow beards when they're deployed in Afghanistan. That's, that's the nature of the operation. Had a big white beard. And so he's, was a, he was out in the range one day on top of a vehicle with a bunch of automatic weapons in a Santa costume, but with his battle rig, so his chest rig and all his, all his magazines, etc., over the Santa suit and his rifle. 
but with this Santa suit on and his natural white beard. So I got a photo of that and it was just a great image. But then years later, I was presenting to a little group, my little bloke at his preschool and their, their little friends, just showing them on, on an Anzac Day thing, showing them some photos of Afghanistan and Timor. And I showed this photo of this uh, Special Forces soldier in his Santa costume, armed up, you know, bombed up. And I uh, said, there's one of our soldiers in Afghanistan at Christmas. And uh, one of the little kids went home to his mum and dad and said, uh, said, mum or dad, Santa is a soldier and he's in Afghanistan. <laughs> and so the parents come back in to see the teachers at, at this at Little Cherubs, this particular preschool, and said, what's going on? You're telling the, my kids that Santa's a soldier and he's in Afghanistan. Well, they showed the parents this photo that, that I had and uh, clearly Santa was a soldier to these, these four-year-olds and clearly he was in Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. In 2010, you retire from the regular army and you go back into Siffy Street to pursue your legal career. A bit later, 2010, I, I, came, I was posted to Canberra as a military prosecutor. So I worked uh, worked for the Director of Military Prosecutions, prosecuting court martial, courts martial rather, and uh, Defence Force magistrate cases around Australia. I did that until very early 2013, at which time I had to leave. I was running for the Senate. So I was on Labor's Senate ticket in an unwinnable spot, but nonetheless, I was on the ticket and I had to therefore um, leave the regular army. It was time to leave anyway, I think, to be honest. It had been, I had a couple of very, very demanding deployments and a very demanding caseload coming into prosecute. I was an experienced prosecutor, so needless to say, and an experienced deployed lawyer. So my boss, the brigadier, gave me a lot of the, the more intense operationally um, related, you know, as in deployment related cases. So I had some very full on um, courts martial to prosecute. Did that for a while, came back and then got out. I would imagine that the court martial process, though, of all the sort of work you can do in the courts, wouldn't be a particularly pleasant one. Particularly the, the nature of the cases, they're never pleasant. I had a lot of sexual assaults and indecent assaults and quite big frauds early on. And then later on, I had some cases um, involving incidents that occurred on operations overseas. Uh, one of which, interestingly, and again, this is public record, so I can speak about this, was a matter involving a group of military police men who were involved in some fraudulent um, dealings with detainees and in the processing of detainees in Afghanistan. Now, the boss gave it to me, the brigadier gave it to me, one, because I, I was fully aware of the nature of the work in Afghanistan. I was not long out of there myself. I was fully aware of the nature of the military police detainee handling role because, one, I was an ex-military police officer, and two, I was the detainee handler in Afghanistan. So the brief came to me, but I found myself prosecuting, and without fear or favour, of course, but prosecuting a group of military police um, soldiers and an officer for this this uh, fraudulent uh, and um, very messy dealing with detainees, with you know, with captured insurgents. So um, you know, these these men were all convicted, and um, and appropriate punishments were handed down. But that was that was a, a very demanding case. Uh, but again, you, you prosecute on the evidence before you without fear or favour. You leave the military and you're back in the legal system. I went to the the bar. I went to the Northern Territory bar initially as a as a barrister because I wanted to just do court work. I wasn't a big fan of the of the paperwork side of of lawyering. So yeah, so I went to the Northern Territory bar with a view to practicing up in around the territory. And my wife was a, a remote, a rural and remote GP by then, so she was pretty keen to get back up there. But I found myself quite very quickly drowning. And I'll, I'll use that term quite literally in a lot of veterans mental health related criminal work and administrative appeals from decisions of veterans affairs but predominantly this PTSD related or mental health related criminal work I was getting veterans or their families or their mates coming to me saying look I'm in trouble with the police or my husband or whatever is in trouble with the police he he has they're all men I didn't have any female clients in this space um he has chronic PTSD can you we've got no money legal aid won't touch us can you help him 
This is all around New South Wales. So I found myself staying in New South Wales to pick up all around the state to pick up these um, PTSD-related mental health cases. They were all, all pro bono free, not the best business model, I guess you would argue, but um, nonetheless, uh, it was out of necessity rather than, than desire. But later on, it became out of desire because I saw the need, this critical need, and I didn't want to see any more veterans going to jail where they could otherwise be diverted into treatment. So something like 100, 102 cases, I think, we've, we've run. 100 of those were successfully diverted out of the criminal justice system into mental health treatment. The charge goes away, they're diverted out of that system, and zero recidivism rate, so no repeat offending, which tells me, one, the diversion works, two, these people should never have been in the criminal justice system in the first place, and it begs me to, to ask the question, how many veterans are in jail around New South Wales and Australia who have mental health conditions who perhaps should have been diverted? Yes, well, that's a discussion all of its own. Absolutely. Out of necessity, my practice had to become exclusively a pro bono veterans practice. So early on, a number of um, administrative appeals before the AAT, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, against decisions from Veterans Affairs and that's a whole other line of lobbying there that I've had to get into because I think some of the Veterans Affairs, Department of Veterans Affairs decisions are just terrible uh, and the processes are a disgrace. I'll put that aside for the moment. But the, the PTA, mental health-related criminal work, I was inundated with these cases to the point that I was travelling all around New South Wales and uh, my best mate, who was an ex-commando, ex-Special Forces soldier, I met overseas and we'd sort of done other things together, is now a law and commerce student at... Uh, Wollongong Uni, and he's also the Vice President of RSL New South Wales now, Mick Bainbridge. Great bloke, sharp as a tack. He and I began representing these um, these veterans around the state in these, these, criminal, these mental health-related criminal cases. And whilst it doesn't pay the mortgage, it certainly helps me sleep at night, and it certainly uh, gives me a feeling of putting something back Doing, doing the right thing. At the end of the day, doing the right thing for these men and women, but they're mostly men, as I say, uh, who, have, who we've sent overseas, we've put them in harm's way, We've therefore contributed to their mental health, adverse mental health outcomes. They come back to Australia and you know, unsurprisingly, the wheels come off and they're suddenly there out by themselves. Now, I do not want to see any more veterans going to jail because of that mental health nexus when we can get them into treatment. And fortunately, your wife is still pursuing her medical practice work. That pays the mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> I have the I, most... I was just trying to think how the money was working in this yeah, family and... and yeah. And I think, in fairness, you've been blessed with a good marriage, clearly. Absolutely. Emma's a rock. Emma's followed me from base to base over the years um, when she was an intern and a resident registrar, et cetera. Um, so she's been exposed to, obviously, being near military bases. There are a lot of veterans or serving people and therefore a lot of mental health cases. Um, so Emma's been exposed to that veteran space, uh, having followed me around from location to location as well. So um, so it's sort of um, given her that um, that opening into the veteran space, and but very supportive, absolutely right. And again, it's another discussion, but very little is said about the women and, and the men who marry the serving ladies in the forces today, but yeah. particularly, you know, the ladies that follow their men and they live on these bases yeah. in the most remote of places. It's the most Spartan accommodation. It's not the harmonious urban life that the average housewife or gentleman would, would aspire to enjoy. Um, so good on her. Can I, can I give you a quick story about that, just very quickly? Please. Emma, I went to Afghanistan. Emma was at, in Wagga, so away from her family, working at Wagga Base Hospital, I think as an intern then, and pregnant. 
with our first child. I was supposed to be home in time for the birth, but I got a phone call one night. I was about to board a helicopter to go out in support of an operation. So I was, you know, bombed up. I was ready to go. Uh, Emma rang and I said, look, can I call you back in a couple of days? I've just got to go out and do something. She goes, no, no, the baby's coming. And the baby came in quite trying circumstances. Emma had um, what they call HELP syndrome. So it's uh, severe preeclampsia, as I understand it. So not in the best state. They had to do an emergency Caesar. So I delayed my departure on the helicopter, but um, I'm sort of walking around the base, not knowing what's going on around Tarancot, uh, yeah, around Camp Russell, rather, around our, our unit. Emma's gone in for emergency, an emergency cesarean. I get a phone call from her dad saying that Emma was hemorrhaging. So both Emma and the baby had to be flown back to Westmead Children's Hospital by air ambulance. I can laugh now, but at the time it was must have been horrendous for Emma. Husband's in Afghanistan. She knows I was sort of you know, pretty busy. She's in this place, um, you know, undergoing this, uh, this birth in trying circumstances. Both Emma and, and Nicholas were fine. But the, the end story from that, I came home a few weeks later Turned up at Sydney Airport um, with all my all my green equipment, my boxes, and my all my all my gear, unshaven, long hair, looking quite feral, having just spent one night in Dubai on the way home, in you know the El Minhad Air Base on the way back to this brand new clean little baby, still with his um, little ankle and wrist straps on. So I'm crying at Sydney Airport, bawling, you know. But that you're right. Um, that just shows the, the how the partners really wear wear the the, the brunt of, of our service. I think. Equally, you know, you're waiting to receive this call to hear she's okay and there's a helo literally waiting to pick you up and, and deploy you and how you have to switch on and be 100% for the troops you're with. It just really highlights how difficult warfare... I mean, warfare is always terrible and it's always difficult, but I can certainly see the difficulty in, in, in this story. So, Glenn, you're now running Glenn Colomitz Lawyers... Mm. How do people get in touch with you if they'd like to use your services? They seem to have no trouble getting in touch with me. It's been, um, it's less frequently the actual veteran themselves. It's more often the partner or a friend or something um, saying, contact um, Glenn. The, a lot of these blokes, and I say blokes, uh, again, mostly men, are too proud to reach out, too proud to reach out, and particularly too proud to reach out to a military lawyer with whom they may have served, uh, a former military lawyer with whom they may have served. In fact, I had one Vietnam veteran who got caught up, uh, joined a, a, a motorcycle club and got caught up in a little bit of nonsense there. In um, He said to me that part of his biggest, in his plea and mitigation, part of his biggest um, shame was having to reach out to a former army lawyer to help him out. So... Look, but they, they can contact me. Um, I'm trying to grow this network because it's, it's a very big, big caseload and it, it takes an enormous toll, I have to say. Every case is horrible. Every case is, is mental health related. So it, it takes its toll. I'm trying to build the network and get more lawyers out there actively involved in the pro bono veteran space. There's a lot of lawyers are prepared to do pro bono work for the, for the Cat Protection Society and a lot of very honourable lawyers doing refugee work and that's great. Pro bono refugee work, that's great. But how about we start putting into this veteran space and there's very few of us I've got two or three helping me out now in New South Wales, very few of us doing this. I think it's a good pro bono commitment. You've also done some work with one of our previous guests on this podcast, Jay Devereaux of Veterans 360. Jay's a great bloke. I've never met a more dynamic, veteran-focused person who's not a veteran himself. It's, it's, it's amazing. You would think he was because this guy is just so focused, and, and his partner Tessa, they're so focused on their mission. I, I met Jay when I was at RSL, and Jay came to me and wanted um, wanted help funding what he was doing. Veteran 360 is what, it's what I call the mission beat of the veteran community. They're out there actively identifying veterans at risk of homelessness or you know, currently homeless 
and providing what we call a wraparound welfare service, um, not just giving them a roof, but the whole spectrum. And it's gone beyond that. It's gone to that Jay referring some of these some of these people to me when they're caught up in with the coppers. Homeless people get caught up with the coppers. That's the reality. And homeless veterans are no different, right? So we're providing this 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 holistic service, this wraparound service. And Jay made that organisation. He's he's grown it, and he incredibly knowledgeable guy in that in that homeless space. I understand he was homeless himself many years ago. Yes. Look, your work and Jay's work and, and many others is no different to typical Australians who are predominantly self-employed business people. Mm-hmm. We like working for ourselves, doing our own thing. That's what we're best at. I understand Jay has um, approached, uh, has, has uh, engaged with a couple of, um, of businesses who are now providing some money to his mission, supporting Veterans 360. So that, that's a really good, um, a good outcome. Looking at this amazing career where you have a habit of doing so many different things so often, I'm sure we're going to be hearing about you again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you very much for joining us today, sharing your amazing story. It's a story of service and it's a story of you know, love and compassion for your fellow veterans and we thank you for it. Thank you very much. This is a revised edition of the original podcast. Saving Our Veterans with Jay Devereaux was one of our early bonus episodes last year. Be sure to look it up and find out more about the great work of Veterans 360 Australia. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can also find us at that name on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Look us up and give us a like or a follow. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>